The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwynn in your radio I have all sorts of mouth-watering tricks in my repertoire to stir up your imagination and appetite this hour, so do stay tuned. I'm all about delicious conversation and enticing your senses, and this is food conversation that fits your life. This is your cooking community and an easy way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment. There are a few things you won't want to miss at chefjamie.com. I have cool ideas for summer feasts, quick fix summer grilling recipes, creative cocktails, and more. Always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, C-H-E-F-J-A-M-I-E.com, and on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen. Okay, I love a summer picnic, and I think Southern comfort foods offer the perfect mix to fill a picnic basket, don't you? So I thought I'd kick off this Sunday's culinary conversation with some spicy cornbread, veggies with a blue cheese dip, and of course, it's not a picnic unless there's fried chicken, right? How better to celebrate summer with the scoop on a finger-licking favorite, fried chicken 101. I think that fried chicken isn't as hard to many great cooks as it might seem. It's all about having the right tools, picking the right ingredients, and then knowing a few tips and tricks that will have you frying like a pro in no time. And it's all about being prepared. Of course, in the French term, we call that mise en place, anything and everything in its place. But I think when it comes to fried chicken, you need to make sure that all of your elements are in place, like the brine, the dredge, the seasoning, the oil, and having everything ready before you start really does make for the ultimate fried chicken. Now, when it comes to brining, it is my number one most important die hard rule to fried chicken. The number one ingredient in brines are most often water, or you can use apple cider or other flavored liquids. But I will say it's the salt that performs the hardest work, and in fact, double duty when it comes to brining. The salt tenderizes the meat by breaking down its cellular structure, and it also enhances the tastiness of the chicken, of course. Now, you can brine anywhere from two hours to two days, and I actually like to infuse my brines with fabulous flavor. I use four cups of water to every half cup of salt if I want a really bold, pungent brine and I'm brining for a shorter period of time. I use four cups of water to a quarter cup of kosher salt if I'm brining overnight or anything longer than that. And then I like to add a little bit of sugar, could be white sugar or brown sugar. I like to add herbs and spices, peppercorns. You can actually season the brine with lots of different flavoring. The sky or the fry rather is the limit. Now, after brining, It's all about the dredging, right? And the most important thing when it comes to dredging is that after you've coated the chicken, you let it chill. 
So a cold chicken during breading actually helps the coating adhere. And then refrigerating the chicken after you've breaded it really gives you the most brilliant, crunchy exterior, and it makes the coating stick during cooking as well. Now, I'm all about flour power. So the way I make my fried chicken is I brine the pieces of the bird first, preferably overnight. Then I take them out from the brine. I rinse them dry. And I take them to another marinade. I like to take them to a buttermilk bath. So buttermilk bathing is the second step after brining. And I like to make a mix of spicy buttermilk as the bath. I use uh, your favorite hot sauce, Tabasco, uh, La Victoria Salsa Brava, whatever your favorite is. And I use buttermilk, a good dose of hot sauce. And then I season that with salt and pepper as well. Now, you can actually buttermilk bathe for as little as 30 minutes, or you can add almost another whole day to the process, just depending upon your timing. Now, when it comes to the flour power part, you always want to toss the chicken in a large amount of flour dredge because I think it really promotes a lighter, flakier finished product. So I do it in a great big resealable, like a Ziploc bag, and I use more flour than you will ever need to coat all the chicken because again, shaking it around in an excessive amount of flour gives you a flakier finished product. Now, I season my flour as well, very liberally with salt and pepper. So every aspect of this preparation method for fried chicken really gives you big, bold flavor. So you've brined, you've buttermilk bathed, and now you've dipped. I think most chefs would agree that a cast iron skillet is the frying pan of choice when it comes to brilliant fried chicken. You can, of course, deep fry. It actually cooks faster than the skillet fried, but you don't get that crispy, perfectly burnished crust in places that I love that comes from a cast iron skillet. Now, you want to remember always to keep it hot. There is nothing sadder than a soggy batch of fried chicken, and the culprit is usually oil when the temperature has dunk or sunk down too low. So to avoid the pitfall, I suggest a candy or a deep fry thermometer. And I do recommend that you try to keep the oil as close to 350 degrees or 375 at the max as possible. Now, don't crowd the pan. That's my best chef's tip as well, because the environment of the cast iron skillet lends itself best to even cooking when there's room, there's oil all the way around the chicken and really allows the chicken to have its room to crisp up and turn golden. Don't overcrowd the pan and be sure to turn over just once. I always start the top side or the skin side down of the chicken breast, let's say, or thighs in the pan. Once they're golden and the oils come up about halfway, of course, in the cast iron skillet, when you turn them over, they'll continue to cook on the underside. And depending upon how hot your oil is or how great your pan is, you're looking at about 15 minutes for dark meat and about 20 minutes for the breast meat. I've posted what I think is an indulgent recipe for the very best fried chicken at chefjamie.com. So please do check it out. You'll also find my Think Like a Chef feature on the website. It's my goal to inspire you to be the best cook you can be and to make you a better cook in your own kitchen. So this week's Think Like a Chef feature is very appropriately, in fact, speaking of fried chicken, all about caring for cast iron. 
the best cast iron skillets are a thing of tradition, right? They're passed down to generations with the memories of grandma's fried chicken or the pineapple upside down cake that's famous in your family that seasoned that pan that you inherited to perfection. And these cast iron pans are to be treasured. You can keep them for decades to come if you care for them properly. And if you buy a new cast iron pan, it comes pre-seasoned today. But caring for that historical pan takes a little extra effort. Um, Some cooks, some cast iron diehards, they don't dare let their pans near water. But if you have a pan that needs a little love, I've posted a few tips to restore a rusted gem. Water is definitely the enemy to cast iron because if it's not dried properly, that's where the rust comes from, of course. I've given you some tips to season traditional cast iron skillets to keep them healthy and usable for years to come. And then if you happen to have recently inherited a pan that might not be in such great shape, you'll actually start the seasoning process from the beginning. You coat it with cooking oil. You can use canola or any high heat or high smoking point oil. And then you place the pan in a 350 degree oven for an hour. Then you let it cool. You dry it with paper towels. And every time you use the cast iron skillet again, you'll sort of reinforce the nonstick coating. I've given some tips on how to clean your pan every time and what to look for if you're buying a new piece of cast iron cookware, all posted on the website at chefjamie.com. How about grilling the ultimate shrimp for summer for dinner tonight. Well, I've posted a pistachio pesto grilled shrimp. That's one of my favorites. And the pesto is laden with lemon. I love a lemony pesto for shrimp, for fish, even as a spread for garlic bread. And you can skewer my pistachio pesto grilled shrimp as an appetizer. Just thread a few on a soaked wooden skewer. Or you could use the metal skewers, of course. Or you could even use a lemongrass stick or a sugarcane stick for that matter. If you skewer a few more and you serve them over grilled potatoes and charred asparagus with a big chunk of garlic bread, you've got a great main course. I also have a berry ice that I inspired by the summer, created from fresh berries from the farmer's market, and a tropical freeze cocktail that's all about cream of coconut, orange juice, fresh berries, and a splash of rum posted on the website at chefjamie.com. So if you're looking for a new grocery shopping experience, let me pause here and mention to you a recent experience at Smart and Final that was better than ever. For those of you here in Southern California, Smart and Final has really rethought their stores by basing it on the way you shop. The new Smart and Final offers everything your supermarket does in terms of fresh produce and a wine selection that's pretty glorious, in fact. Their dairy, their top-grade meats, everything from a club store, but with sizes large and small. And there's no membership fee required at Smart and Final to reap the benefits of their low prices. They offer exclusive brands as well, just like national brands, that they guarantee are your money back. And I love that the aisles are big enough to get a couple shopping carts through without hurting anybody. I, in fact, just used all Smart and Final ingredients for a recent July 4th celebration on KTLA Channel 5, and you 
can find the videos and recipes on the website. But for your weekly shopping needs or any celebration for that matter, check out the local Smart and Final store in your area or smartandfinal.com and check out their specials. This week, First Street boneless, skinless chicken breasts are at $1.89 per pound and First Street pasta is at $1.89 for a two-pound bag. I'm thinking a penne with grilled chicken and zucchini and ripe garden tomatoes and goat cheese. Oh, there you go. Dinner's on. And please do stay tuned because there's more fabulous food and delicious conversation to feed your soul in your radio coming up. He is Adam Rogers, and he's the author of a new book all about the science of booze called Proof. He's quite an intelligent cat as well. So uh, stay tuned. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Plus, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the microplane. Yes, it is my favorite kitchen gadget and everything from lemon zest to chocolate shavings to grated nutmeg comes from this genius tool. Stay tuned. Tracy Panas joins us live and we're divulging the secret recipes from the California pizza kitchen empire. Chef Brian Sullivan in your radio coming up. Don't touch your dial. We'll feed your soul with fabulous food. We'll give you a taste of the techie life and everything that you need to live the best life right here. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. Sharing my outlook on the food world with you, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. So life in the kitchen, as we all know, is so much easier when you use the right tools for the task. I love my microplanes. What's your most used kitchen gadget? From grating lemon zest to ginger to chocolate to cheese, even to nutmeg. It's a super versatile tool, and I'm delighted that Microplane is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. So we're celebrating the trendy tool. Here to share more of its virtues is Tracy Panace of Microplane, of course, and I'm glad to have you, Tracy. Happy anniversary. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Who invented the Microplane? And for those that don't know, if you would, talk about the design in and of itself, exactly what a Microplane is. Microplane kind of came to the kitchen in a different kind of way. We didn't set out to develop a tool that was used by culinary professionals such as yourself all over the world, but the company was started as a woodworking tool. We're based in Russellville, Arkansas, and so as a third-generation company, one of the original Grace family members, which is the owner of the company, liked to woodwork, and so he he set out to make a, a really sharp woodworking tool, and so we sold those tools to small independent hardware stores throughout the country as well as in Canada. And in 1994, a Canadian housewife was baking one of her favorite recipes, which was an Armenian orange cheesecake, and she was just fed up with the way her zester was performing on her orange. And so she grabbed her husband's woodworking tool and discovered that it created the lightest, fluffiest zest without getting into the bitter pith that we all know. It doesn't taste so good on an orange. And then... Her husband shared this information and cross-merchandised this woodworking tool in the kitchen section of his hardware store. And this was picked up on by the press in Toronto, and then and the New York Times actually picked up on the story as well. And then we started getting calls, and again, we're based in Russellville, Arkansas, so it's not really the mecca of <laughs> culinary dining or, or anything. And so calls started coming in from the likes of Martha Stewart and other very well-known and respected chefs, and 
the company started to, to kind of say, hey, we, we might be on to something mm-hmm. here. And so that's really how Microplane found its way into the, the kitchen. It, I think it's a great success story. And I love that Arkansas is now on the culinary map, per yeah, se. Yeah. Um, the Microplane started, and my original tool, what I remember, still exists today. It has a handle and a long blade that extends from it with the beauty of a zester, but not the traditional zester like you spoke about the baker using. It doesn't have four small little holes and uh, little power. It has this great ability to take the old-fashioned box grater out of the mix and allow you to grate the fine, gorgeous zest of everything from citrus effortlessly to hard cheeses, like I shave Parmesan over meatballs or Parmesan over Caesar salad, right? Grating ginger got easier when the microplane moved into the cooking aisle in the hardware store. Um, I know I have chef friends that love to mince garlic because it gives you mm-hmm. almost the, the meltability, if that's a word, of garlic when you saute it. It almost dissipates into the oil if you've microplaned it. I'm shaving chocolate. What have I missed? What are the other favorites for using a traditional microplane grater? Yeah, the traditional grater, as you mentioned, it's it's that long rasp. It's very iconic of the microplane brand, but it can also be used for spices. So, you know, cinnamon or nutmeg, as well as chili. So, you know, anything that is often hard to, to chop or you don't want that texture can be used on the rasp. And then from that original rasp, we really set out to leverage what our company is good at, and that's creating sharper cutting tools. And so looking at other types of food. So what type of the microplane process, if you will, could be used for other foods. So things like coconut or onion or potatoes, that fine blade has evolved into eight different blade styles, which can be used accordingly, depending upon what you're trying to prepare or what type of texture you're trying to create. Right. And there's a whole new slew of microplane gadgets and tools that are just releasing, in fact, to celebrate your 20th anniversary. And uh, as a, a home cook from a professional perspective, I have to say, I think my favorite is the new microplane with the measuring ability. So you've always been able to zest lemons, let's say, over the cutting board and then measure. But your new tool has the ability to capture the lemon zest as you grate and then measure from there. I think it's pretty fabulous. It is. And thank you for saying that. Um, And that's one of the things being, we're a small company, but a big brand. And so it gives us the ability to still, I think, listen to what consumers really want. And that was the one thing that we were told repeatedly over the years was, that, you know, we want something that you can catch and measure. Mm-hmm. We're all busy. So, you know, who has time to grab a measuring cup and to get you know, get all these different things out and then have to clean them? So we integrated all of the microplane tools because they're really sharp. <laughs> you may have cut yourself a few times. I know I have, uh, but they all include a cover. So to protect your fingers as well as to protect the integrity of the blade. And so we wanted to use that same cover to double as a catch. And so what you're referring to is that function of having the catch and cover all integrated into one unit. Yes, so fabulous. it is pretty slick. For those that are concerned about cuts 
and mm-hmm. fingers close to blades. The new cut-resistant glove from Microplane is pretty cool as well, um, and it will allow you to prepare food safer, and they're comfortable. I tried one on. I love that you have a cut-resistant glove. I love, to the new um, herb chopping tool. We've seen so many gadgets if you're up late in the middle of the night, right? But what better than Microplane's very sharp surgical steel blades. Enlighten us, if you would, maybe about the herb cutter and a couple of other of the new innovations. The herb mill was really our first kind of entree into what I would consider a gadget. And that was something that, as I said, that we're still a family-owned company. And the owners of our company never wanted to produce a Me Too item. So the thought process was, if it wasn't difficult to do, we didn't want to do it. So <laughs> um, the herb mill does incorporate our original etch technology. So it's dual action blades that act as like hundreds of tiny little scissors to be able to mince fresh herbs. And it's very similar to the original premise of the rasp is that it's effortless, it's easy, you know, but yet it's very, very efficient. So it's designed for fresh herbs. So things like cilantro, dill, uh, mint is really beautiful in the herb chopper. So it, all of those things that we, we use on a regular basis, and I think people are using more and more as people become more health conscious, mm-hmm. it just takes kind of the guesswork out of it, and it's just putting the herbs into a, kind of a pepper mill-shaped container right. and a simple twist action, and Smart. out comes whatever you need to prepare the dish that you're working on. Yeah, it's really smart. I love the cube grater as well, bringing a whole new meaning to the box grater. I like its uh, small size. I love the multifunction. I really believe that in our crazy busy lives today, the more useful shortcuts you can find to create fresh, fabulous flavor, the better. And so I um, certainly commend Microplane for making our time in the kitchen more enjoyable, uh, easier, uh, and certainly simpler um, with the use of great tools. And that's my goal on the radio is to arm my listeners, great cooks, with the tools that you need to become a better chef in your own kitchen. We congratulate you on celebrating 20 great years, pun intended, G-R-A-T-E, <laughs> yes. right, of Microplane. Yes. And we look forward to the new innovations. Uh, you can certainly go to microplane.com to learn more about the newest tools of the trade. She is Tracy Panace of Microplane the revolutionary graders that are ingeniously designed to provide superior results uh, in your kitchen and mine. Tracy, a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion and for always bringing us new culinary insight. Thank you so much. Of course. My pleasure as well. Thank you. There's more fabulous food finds in your radio right after this. You wouldn't dare touch your dial now, would you? Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. This is your culinary playground every Sunday. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. We are continuing our cocktail conversation, in fact, today. If you're science thirsty, then this spirit knowledge is for you. There is a new book called Proof, the Science of Booze that just released to much acclaim, in fact, written by the lauded writer and well-awarded Adam Rogers. He is the articles editor at Wired Magazine, a man truly passionate about booze, in fact. 
He says that we have been perfecting the science of alcohol production for tens of thousands of years, in fact. And it's the modern scientists, though, that are only just beginning to distill the complex reactions behind the perfect buzz. So in a spirited tour across continents and cultures, Adam puts our alcoholic history under the microscope, everything from fermentation to distillation to aging. His book, called Proof, offers a unique glimpse inside the barrels, the stills, the tanks, and the casks that produce the iconic drinks that we love. Adam is joining us live to Dish, and I am so glad to have you. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad, and congratulations. The book is all the buzz. I love that you call yourself a geek when it comes to all of this extraordinary knowledge. I think that it's quite a wonderful place we're in, in the food and spirit world, to be able to speak in such depth about spirits and cocktails and more. And I'd love if you would to share a little bit of your background or why it's such a passion for you. Yeah, of course. I do, I guess, claim that term geek. I tend to appreciate the things that I appreciate through trying to understand how they work, Mm. which maybe is a pretty good definition of geekery overall. So my background is as a science journalist. I come up through the journalism world with a bit of science training as an undergraduate and some history of science training as an undergraduate. But most of the science I know is on the job. Most of the eating and drinking that I know, I suppose, is on the on the job in its own way also. Dinners were always very important to my family, right? And, and also sort of some rituals, some drinking rituals were always pretty important in my family too. My grandmother's Gibson and my dad's 1980s California red wine expertise, that was just a, a way my family interacted with not only at the conversation at the dinner table was often conversation about the dinner table. You know? mm. um, and so to be able to bring some of that love for this stuff to kind of to make that overlap with my professional expertise, which is, I hope, trying to figure out how complicated things work and then explain them in an entertaining way. I love how you educate throughout the book. First and foremost, when it comes to booze itself, you speak to the fact that all distilled spirits start with something fermented. And it all starts with that fungus among us, as you mentioned. It all starts with yeast, right? So teach us, please. I'm not saying this is true across the board, but one way to organize knowledge about alcohol is to separate it into categories, right? So we talk about wine or beer or tequila or rum or whiskey. That's a heuristic, right? It's a way of organizing knowledge. And it's a really good one because there are a lot of categories out there and there's something interesting to say about all of them. But I wanted to try to take a different approach. This was the thing that I realized that enabled me to structure a book, which was this, that there is an arc to this process that you started with yeast and then yeast ate sugar. That was fermentation. And then you could take the product of fermentation and distill it And then you could take the product of distilling and age it. And then you would take that product and smell and taste it. And then it would have an effect on your body and brain. And I went, oh, well, that's a process art. That's a biography. And the thing that I liked about that was, well, were two things, actually. One of them was that I could say to somebody, listen, you can start with yeast, but that's invisible. So put that aside for a second. Go to grape juice. Ferment that, you get wine. Distill that, you get pisco. And age that, and you get brandy, cognac Mm -hmm. or armagnac. Just to be able to say to somebody this really profound thing, which is whiskey is distilled beer. Hmm. For a whiskey drinker or a beer drinker, they will go like, oh, of course it is. On the one hand, you go like, I already had that knowledge on board in a way, but never really processed it. So the process arc let me do that. What it also does is that now I have this book structure that pivots on that moment that for me has a lot of, I guess, romantic weight, which is the, the moment in a bar where you get served a drink. This is this simple transactional thing that happens millions of times a day, I don't know. 
but that becomes, that I say in the book with some intentional hyperbole, the, the most important moment in the history of humanity, right? <laughs> this, this transaction of you go in, order a drink, a bartender puts down a napkin or a coaster, a drink on top of it, you take a sip. And that moment has 200 million years of history behind it and 10,000 years of human uh, interaction with nature and our environment and 2,000 years of human technology. Um, and then has, you know, the next, the next eight hours of your experience with it are... Um, are deeply enmeshed in our own biology and our own biochemistry, all the things that make us physical human beings. Right. So, so that that pivotal moment becomes a place to, to spin off of and talk about almost every field of science hmm. that gets touched on by that moment or affects that moment. And that was the structure that I wanted to build. And I love how you explain the process because for me, it makes it understandable. For me, it grows my knowledge while growing my appreciation. I had a very wonderful experience at Crush in Napa some years ago, and I gained a far greater appreciation for what it takes for the grapes to get into the bottle. And I think it changed my perspective. And I think the knowledge that we share definitely often alters our perspective, our appreciation. I wonder if you had that same experience visiting distilleries around the world, whether it be in Scotland or here in the States, to really better understand the process. I do. I I actually went kind of back and forth on that because I think that connoisseurship has a lot of different manifestations, right? Having had Somalia training, you know, you know this. You become a person who has a robust vocabulary for describing the experiences of drinking wine, right? Yes, for sure. And I've highly trained sense memory for those wines, for many of those wines. Yeah. That's a kind of very advanced connoisseurship. Wine especially has a kind of connoisseurship that also goes into a lot of science. Sometimes I think to its detriment where you start to oh, really become the like, oh, well, we want to talk about what exact kind of minerals are in the terroir that might affect the certain climate of the microclimate that's on the hill slope that's on the north side of the river, not on the south side of the river. <laughs> you know, and you sort of go like, okay, yes, yeah, that's, down. Yes, that's that, called newfound confidence, yeah. right? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> you see that a lot in wine, less so in a lot of in, in distilling, although more and more now that there's a lot of craft distilling and people are getting more experience with smaller brands, smaller names, labels. But, yes, what I get every time I go to a distillery or a winery or a brewery, would be like knowledge of process, some knowledge of the science. But I started to realize that a lot of the makers, they aren't doing science. They're doing craft, right. equally important. Mm. But what they're doing is they're, they're learning what specific techniques they need to follow for their specific environment, and whether that's like the substrate, the product that they're making, the whatever the microbiome of the world that they're working in is that changes flavor, how to work their particular still or their particular gear. But... Because some of the science is unknown, and what science is known doesn't actually promulgate well to many, especially many small producers, um, they didn't really know. Right. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you could ask them sort of like, okay, well, I see that you're doing that process for aging. You're doing Solera aging of your cognac-style brandy. You right. know, so you're taking some of the really old stuff and putting it in with the new stuff and doing mm-hmm. a complicated mixing of all that. Okay, so what, what molecules are what chemicals are in there? Right, so how does, does it work? Do? Yeah, no, exactly. How does it work? And, you go, <laughs> and they go... Uh, uh, it makes it taste good that's why you have to read the book right well and so i'm i mean and the hope was okay well how do i mesh those worlds right and and i think you've done that successfully and and much to the acclaim of everyone who's talking about your book and taking the science and breaking it down i would love if you would debunk the myth because i thought it was so interesting to read about how everything we ever knew about the hangover is wrong yeah, I wish it was not thus. I, and all that stuff that they told you, the like 
the day before your first weekend of college. Right, the sugary drinks. Not true. The dehydration, not true. Mixing your drinks, not true. Mm-hmm. You know, at least there's no proof behind them. And I, mm-hmm. so I would probably phrase that as they're not true. But a researcher would probably say, well, they're not proven yet. What they do think hangovers look like is an inflammatory response, like if you have the flu. Right. Um, and so, so a lot of the treatments, the, the, the kind of the substances, either over the counter or not, that have been shown to have an actual impact on uh, on hangover in a real study, are things in general are things with an anti-inflammatory effect. Although there are some mm-hmm. other other things out there that may be that that may work and that also point toward a mechanism for how ethanol actually works in the brain, which is something that scientists haven't totally figured out yet. Hmm. I see. You learned it here first. And then last but not least, I'd love to know, in the heat of summer, what are you drinking now? Huh. <laughs> I am, let me just preface my answer by saying I am the world's most annoying person to have a drink with now because I have this huge algorithm in my head, like what I want to drink <laughs> and when I drink it. Um, summer, I tend to turn to brown liquor with ice. I drink, you know, uh, interesting bourbons or cheap and delicious bourbons um, with ice. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I would say... There's there's a, a, a super industrial bourbon out there called Bullet. It's very cheap. It's delicious. It's like twenty bucks a bottle. Um, ice cubes, Bullet. Bullet. Very tasty. That tends to be my summer. Also, I drink a lot of sake. Just for the record, I'd sit down to a cold sake with you anytime to gain more knowledge. Uh, we certainly appreciate that you're sharing your passion, and congratulations to you. I think that this is one of um, the most extraordinary books to be released with incredible history that is understandable, that we can relate to, um, that we can certainly uh, use to as a base to grow our passion. Um, and it is no doubt an unparalleled drinking companion. The book is called Proof with Lots of Praise, The Science of Booze. It was written by Adam Rogers and is available now on Amazon, of course. He is the articles editor at Wired Magazine. He has won the Kavli Science Journalism Award. He was a journalism fellow at MIT. Really, do you need more? Um, just go go out and read it. It is a great read. And you can learn more, of course, on Adam's website at adam-rogers.net or read his proof blog at wired.com. Adam, thank you again. Congratulations. We look forward to talking with you soon. Good. Me too. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, we do have the best gastronomic thinkers on this show. Don't touch your dial. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio sharing food news from experts and visionaries and bringing you closer to the food on your plate. In 1985, after a grueling trial ended in a hung jury, criminal defense lawyers Larry Flax and Rick Rosenfield decided to call it quits. The longtime business partners decided to embark on a radically different second career. And I love food success stories. They started selling California-style pizza with unusual toppings like smoked Gouda cheese and cilantro and barbecued chicken. And the verdict? Well, according to the customers who mobbed the first location in Beverly Hills and prompted the lawyers who turned restaurateurs to expand throughout Southern California, California Pizza Kitchen began. Today, they operate more than 250 restaurants in 33 states and 11 countries, 
and the love grows. They're updating the concept at CPK and they're introducing some new menu items. So I thought that we would dish with California Pizza Kitchen's vice president of culinary innovation, all about the restaurant that you love. He is Brian Sullivan and he joins us live and I'm glad to have you. Welcome, chef. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Well, thank you. And you the same. I'd love to go behind the scenes. I like insight into the success stories, into the brands that we love to know the secrets. And I wonder what you credit as the reason that CPK was named by Entrepreneur Magazine as one of the 120 most trusted brands in the world. California Pizza Kitchen is one of those brands, I think, that you can count on. You know, we've got this wonderful menu. I think the the assortment on our menu has a lot to do with it. I think we have a culture of hospitality when it comes to our service experience. And, um, you know, we offer wonderful beverages as well. And I think that we've been able to maintain our creativity over the years. And that, you know, we're an indulgent restaurant, but you can have some healthy options as well. Okay. So speaking of creativity, from a culinary perspective, you know, we talked to lots of chefs and cookbook authors and great gastronomic experts on this show. But to understand the restaurant world is a totally different dynamic. From a culinary perspective, can you share your menu development philosophy and how you go about creating dishes that you know are going to be sure winners and that end up being just that? Well, I think the first thing that we do is we start with carefully selected fresh ingredients. It's it's amazing food. starts with amazing ingredients, and that's the basis for everything that we do from a culinary creative standpoint. And then I think that we try to sprinkle in innovative ideas with that as well. You know, we want to create items for our menu that people can relate to, but but may have a little bit of a twist to them. So we embrace, you know, traditional culinary practices, but we always like to kind of tweak it a little bit mm-hmm. as well. For us, it's we're the pizza authority at California Pizza Kitchen, but we do more than pizza. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got uh, a lot of other platforms on our menu. And so it gives us the flexibility to be more than just pizza as well. So if in 1985, smoked Gouda and barbecue chicken were innovative, in 2014, what's the new, quote unquote, unique when it comes to pizza toppings, let's say? A few things that I'm working on right now, I'm working with uh, toasted Italian farro, um, you know, quinoa grains have been really um, something fun to work with. And I think introducing America to a lot of these ancient grains is a lot of fun for us. We're cooking um, sunny side up eggs on pizzas now. Um, you know, we're also using Maine lobster on pizza now. Um, so those are just a few of the items that get me excited. It gets me excited too. It makes me hungry, in fact. Um, talk about everyone's favorites, if you would, because it wouldn't be an insider conversation, Chef, if you didn't divulge some of the secrets. So I can tell you I have always loved a barbecue chicken chop salad. I'm not sure that there's anything in it other than fresh chopped ingredients, but there's something about the combination. And we know that there are a few, at least, surefire favorites that everybody loves at CPK, that we'd like to duplicate, by the way. So please um, feel free um, to share the lesser-known secrets of the dishes. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm going to tell you that not more than half an hour ago, I just had the original barbecue chicken chop. Oh, no, don't do myself. that. That's not nice. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I've been here for 26 years. I had it for lunch. I did splash it with a little bit of Cholula sauce to kind of pick it up a little bit, and I added avocados, but it was awesome. But, you know, that's one of those salads. It is iconic to CPK, and I think um, 
One of the main reasons for that is just this combination of ranch dressing and barbecue sauce. There you go. The ranch dressing that we serve on that salad, we make in-house every day, and it has 16 ingredients. And it's it's very herbaceous. It is. There's fresh dill. There's fresh cilantro. There's basil. Um, great, great catch on that. And also, you know, there's there's um, sour cream and there's yogurt. I mean, so it's kind of very, very high, you know, dairy flavor to it, along with those herbs that you just mentioned. Okay, what else on the menu sells the most that you can tell us how to make? Well, I can tell you how to make the original barbecue chicken pizza too. I mean, that's yeah. Uh, Would you a, please start sure. start with the crust because okay. I think one of the secrets to CBK's success has been consistency. Absolutely, a great California style pizza starts with a nice thin crust. Uh, we're we're actually hand tossing our dough now, and each individual pizza has its own personality. Now you're going to get some rustic looking crust. They're not going to be all perfectly round. And to make that pizza, you know, Gail's barbecue sauce is the closest you're going to find to our barbecue sauce. If you see that out there in the market, get it. Otherwise, just use your favorite barbecue sauce. As you mentioned, smoked Gouda cheese. Just put um, a little bit of the shredded uh, Gouda cheese on the pizza, you know, with the barbecue sauce on top of that. And then you're going to top that off with some shaved red onions, Mm -hmm. a little bit of your favorite barbecue chicken, whether you like the, the light meat or the dark meat barbecued and then torn and and coated with a little bit of sauce and then you bake that in the oven oh excuse me i did forget the mozzarella cheese can't forget that so it's Mm -hmm. gouda cheese mozzarella Mozzarella. cheese and then you're going to bake in the oven and then uh, just top it with some fresh cilantro and a little bit more barbecue sauce on top and if you like to give it a little bit of a twist put some fresh pineapple fans or maybe Mm -hmm. some applewood smoked bacon like we use in the restaurant and that's newskis and it's fabulous Absolutely. I'm a fan as well. Um, There are some new items on the CPK menus that include flatbreads. Can you differentiate for us between pizza and flatbread? We cook ours in a wood stone oven, so we got a stone hearth. And the difference for flatbread for us is we press the dough, hand press, really, really thin. And they're kind of sparsely topped as well, so that they're not overly wet. And so you get this really nice, light, crispy crust, and all of the ingredients are able to you know, translate through the crust itself. We're actually sharing a few sneak peek, never shared before recipes at chefjamie.com for the California Pizza Kitchen, Bianco Flatbread, the Chorizo and Poblano, and the Wild Mushroom Pizza. And we'll certainly be visiting a restaurant soon, Brian. We thank you for, for sharing your passion. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope I've satiated your appetite. You can find all the recipes and content heard on this show at chefjamie.com. And if you've missed a show, find my podcast on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. I found an incredible kitchen gadget this past week, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. It's a portable handheld espresso machine. Yes, you heard me right. All the coffee addicts out there, their ears just perked up because nothing should keep you from your morning espresso. It is a handheld gadget that requires zero electricity. It doesn't need any batteries. And yes, it makes a pretty good espresso, I understand. You can learn more at Handpresso on the web. Look it up, Handpresso, and let me know what you think. We can create some culinary conversation together. You can always email me directly, jamie at chefjamie.com. And I'll leave you with this. I like to call it my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. 
Only a trio of ingredients will make you a culinary hero at the backyard barbecue. So fire up the grill, pour a cocktail, and consider my three-ingredient prosciutto-wrapped peaches. All you need are slices or wedges of fresh peach or even nectarine. You'll need some slices of prosciutto cut into thirds and wrapped around each of the peach slices. And then a medium-high grill, about five minutes turning the sliced wrapped peaches often until the prosciutto gets all crispy. I like to brush mine with maple syrup during the last minute or so of grilling. It is a super simple and truly scrumptious summer starter. And I'll post the recipe and the ingredients once again on Facebook at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll encourage you and ask that you do tune in next Sunday to continue to sip and savor with me. You'll find me here every Sunday in your radio, Building Kitchen Confidence and sharing everything I love about the wide world of food. Until then, serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. I thank you for listening. Until next Sunday, I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.